0: Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, we discuss why the economic cycle has gone on so long and what will end it, as well as the so called death of liberalism, with Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer, and Toby Cross, Head of Client Investment Solutions.
1: Well, good morning, everybody. The skies are blue and the temperatures soar here in the UK. What better way to enjoy it than to take our seats at the Barclays Investment Centre Court to see our top-seeded news stories battle it out for relevance. In the umpire's seat this week, deciding on what's in and what's out, our very own Chief Investment Officer, Will Hobbs. So sit back, relax, as we tear the lid off the punish of investment truth and pop the cork on this week's Word on the Street. Right, well, me to serve. This week, we're all about the US. So we had the 4th of July celebrations yesterday, which also represented a big milestone. Uh, The US economic cycle, positive economic cycle, is now the longest in history. So I'm looking to get to the bottom of uh, why this economic cycle has gone on for so long. Um, Is it all thanks to POTUS, as I keep reading on the internet, and can it possibly go on for much longer? So first, let's start off with why it's been going on for so long.
0: Uh, Well, Toby, morning. Uh, There's a number of sort of explanations um, for that. I mean, one of the things I think you can point out is that the depth and the severity of um, the last recession perhaps always suggested that the recovery uh, from it would be similarly um, record-breaking. The other point of context, I think, which is quite important, is that... um, you know, remember that it well, might not always feel like it. Um, recessions have actually been getting less regular and less severe um, when looked at from a much broader panorama, you know, over the last sort of hundred or plus um, uh, years. We are actually getting better at managing the economy. Um, we have better data. The central banks are better run. The institutional context is better. So I think that the main point from us is that we just don't need to assume that you know, every recession is like 0708, and we don't need to be surprised that cycles can go on for a bit.
1: But it's interesting. Before I go on to the next point, is the point that you've raised there, you can see that context very clearly, can't you? Would it be fair to say that the 0708 recession was similar in depth and the severity of what happened on a on a sort of a day by day basis? Mm-hmm to the Great Depression? That was, that was 10 years'
0: worth of economic recovery rather than two years, wasn't it? that
1: Does that illustrate your point? Yeah, well, a lot of
0: people have said that we were very lucky at the time, and some people won't agree with this, but we were very lucky at the time to have a student of the Great Depression in the hottest chair of all chairs. So uh, that was, know, of course, Ben Bernanke. Ben Bernanke. Background was studying, economic background, was studying the Great Depression, wasn't it? That's right. And so the, the package of tools very much was designed with the Great Depression in mind. And so, you know, you can argue that if that package of uh, measures wasn't, you know, from quantitative easing, TARP, all that kind of stuff, if that package of measures wasn't made available, then you could have found uh, a depression. So the longest
1: economic bull run in U.S. history, Um, the question is, obviously,
0: has Donald Trump made America great again? Uh, and again, you know, <laughs> stay away from the political stuff. But I don't think he can probably claim uh, too much of this. You know, he inherited quite a lot of economic uh, momentum uh, in the first place. And certainly, you know, the tax package that you saw um, and the kind of bipartisan spending bill, um, that created a kind of a hump in economic growth. But it doesn't seem to have changed the, the trend. Um, so, you know, that, I kind of think he can probably lay claim to too much of it. Uh, and the trade war maybe one of its sort of major, or the trade tensions between China and the US is certainly one of the major threats to the economic cycle.
1: Now, one of the things that you have said in the past is that economic cycles don't just die of old age. Mm. So what might kill this one?
0: Uh, difficult to say. I mean, if you look at the past, um, you know, you can group um, you can group sort of cycle killers into a few categories. You're looking at kind of oil and other shocks. So, you know, for instance, in the 1970s, you found wars and so on uh, created a real supply problem. And so prices go up and that chokes the economy. The other thing is kind of inflation and the natural kind of overreaction or the necessary overreaction from central bankers. So they raise interest rates to stop your economy overheating and they generally go too far. Um, and then, you know, you've got the sort of, you know, the financial implant imbalances, asset price crashes, all that kind of stuff, they're obviously much less um, easy to predict. But if you look at the first two, so oil shocks, for instance, because of the US kind of energy story, the huge shale discovery, that may mean that the US economy, you know, the engine room for the world economy is a little bit less sensitive to oil shocks than previously. Um, financial uh, inflation, that doesn't seem to be much about at the moment. Uh, and in terms of financial imbalances, the point that we would make is the major causes of the imbalances last time are not looking so uh, so um, so horrible this time around. So, you know, it's not that recessions will never come again, but there's no urgent need for a recession in our opinion right now.
1: No, right. So another thing that, some that comes to mind is you know the mark of a good podcast when people actually start to engage with it so last week we had a couple of really interesting questions off the back of the conversation we had about the the valuation of intangibles we of course were talking about things like Dave Gilmore's Mm. guitar collection and things like that but one of our listeners wrote to me specifically and referenced um, some content that he'd been reading on the internet about how valuable things have become without the the normal, measurable, tangible components of value. And he pointed out to an article that referenced Goldman Sachs, for example, are trading at less than book value, price Mm. to book value. Um, Whereas you look at the likes of PayPal, et cetera, and they're trading on multiples of book value. Just to get to the nub of the matter, another, another comparison that was drawn was what is the value to an employer of, for example, a four-year college degree from a mediocre university versus hiring somebody who has 2 million followers on Instagram. There is a feeling that 2 million Instagram followers has more value to a new upcoming company than you know, a four-year average college degree. Are valuations and is there a new culture evaluation coming or should we still be using the, the you know, the historic Graham and Dodd old school evaluation? What's your view? Well, well, so
0: in there, there are a number of good points about sort of how difficult it is to value Companies today, relative to past eras, so we regularly make the point that you know the S&P in the late 19th century is 12 railroad companies. Now those companies are their frontier investments; they're incredibly risky uh, and they're very capitally consumptive. So they have to go to the bank, borrow lots of money, build stuff, and then eventually you make a return on investment. And that you know that the, the sort of nature of the index stays the same for much of the sort of pre-war and even post-war period. But now you've got companies offering goods and services that would inspire you know a religious terror and many. Of our ancestors that don't really require, uh, you know, going to the bank and funding it. They're hugely cash generative. And the other point, and, and, and you think about how you value the risks investing in those two companies, it's an entirely different proposition to a certain extent. The other point to make, which I thought was quite an interesting one about the rise in intangible values as a proportion of companies, is it means that companies are more vulnerable or certainly uh, would listen more closely to some of the ESG concerns because the damage that you can inflict on a share price uh, where the book value is made up of much more intangible So brand value, things like that, is certainly one where a company should care more about how it acts in the world, how it is perceived, uh, all of those kind of things. So it's interesting in terms of that trend, too, I think.
1: So there's a lot to be said there for things like impact investing. That's right. Um, In this last week, Vladimir Putin effectively declared
0: liberalism as dead. Um, Big news. What does
1: that mean for investors?
0: Yeah, I mean, first of all, what is liberalism? Uh, You know, it gets used a lot. And I I think the first thing to remember is that this is the kind of, this describes the world order that Britain and the US and many of its kind of Western allies um, promoted and, uh, you know, imposed on much of the world for the rest of, you know, for the, The World War II period, post World War II period. And it's kind of a political and economic doctrine that emphasizes kind of autonomy, uh, you know, equality of opportunity and the rights of the individual. Now, the interesting thing about liberalism and its demise is a lot of academics have previously identified the collapse of the Soviet Union as the moment when liberalism starts to, you know, fade. And that's because, in a sense, what they're turning around and saying is that liberalism needs an enemy. Um to define itself. And in the absence of a major enemy, it's become kind of flabby and indistinct as a result. Now, the interesting thing about Putin and maybe even the rise of President Trump is that they may be providing that enemy to liberalism. And there's statistics that back it up. So basically uh, following 19 so in the mid-90s, you have a couple of interesting surveys about um open and this is surveying Americans, openness to immigration and openness and support of free trade. And actually you find that in the period since 19 Ninety, the heyday of kind of, you know, liberalism and the global order and all these kind of things, actually attitudes towards these things have uh, reversed to a certain extent. So Americans are significantly more supportive of immigration, free trade and so on than they were in the heyday of liberalism. And the really interesting thing is that this trend has accelerated since 2016. So you're finding that actually liberalism may have found the enemy it was looking for and it's helping to define itself a little bit more distinctly. Astonishing. So
1: you need two ends to justify a middle. Well, that's the word on the street. All that remains is for me to thank Will Hobbs for his insights this week. And uh, I hope you all enjoy the tennis. Thank you very
0: much. All investments can fall as well as rise in value, and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment
1: recommendation.